You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Leanne. If you will open your Bibles and join me in the reading of God's Word. We are in Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Redeemer, all right, good morning, Redeemer. Merry Christmas, right? Uh, We are one week away um, from Christmas morning, which is crazy to think about. Um, And there's an alert for you in case you forgot. Um, I hope you'll join us. Sarah will talk about this more at the back end of the service, but I hope you'll join us next weekend at our Christmas Eve services on Saturday. Um, They're going to be at 2.30 and 4. We hope you come with your family, with your friends, um, neighbors, um, and come worship coming and remember the coming of our Savior. And then on Sunday morning, we won't have services here, but we will be releasing a short little sermon video on Facebook and YouTube that we hope you'll enjoy to focus your family and yourself on um, why we celebrate Christmas. So um, we're continuing our mini Advent series that Dusty preached on the part of First Luke chapter 1 last week, and we're going to be continuing that today. Advent just means coming of Jesus. And we're looking at today a really unique part of Jesus's birth story. Um, Mary's song is what it's titled. Now, I don't know how many of you are J.R.R. Tolkien fans. Okay, yeah, the Lord of the Rings guy. I have not read, a little bit of disclaimer, I've not read Lord of the Rings. I have read The Hobbit. And I need you to know that I am married to a super nerd, okay, because I vividly remember early in marriage talking about The Hobbit, and I confessed, I admitted that I skipped the songs. I don't know if you've read The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, but there's like these little breaks where they just start singing. And I skipped that. And apparently real fans read the songs. And I would come to the song and be like, oh, okay, Bilbo's singing again. Let's move on. Like, let's, we get it. You like to sing, let's move on. And I can be tempted with the Bible to do the same thing. That we have a song right here where Mary bursts into song. And then a little bit later, you have Zechariah's prophecy at the birth of John the Baptist. And you can be tempted to almost like think, okay, that's insignificant. That's not part of the story. But these are really significant moments in the story, specifically today's, because we get insight into what's on Mary's mind, what's on her heart as she learns that she is carrying the anticipated Messiah. And I'd be willing to bet that all of us collectively, that we would agree that we are pretty like self-centered people, that we are people focused on self, that the majority of our thoughts, our actions, our decisions are about us and what is best for us. 
that I think if you're anything like me, you're tempted to constantly play the comparison game with others. You are looking into other people's life and comparing your life to theirs. I've talked about this in previous sermons that we all have this desire that we want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We want to be wanted. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think that's actually been created in you by God. Yet we idolize that. We turn that into a sense of identity. And because after our desire, seeking after our desire to want to be accepted, liked, wanted, we think and we feel like we become like the center of the universe, that it's about us. That for example, if you're a parent, why do you have to teach your child to share, right? A toddler, there's not a single toddler that I've ever met that just inherently wants to and likes to share. You have to teach them that. Why? Because they're born centered on self. This is my toy, my needs, my wants. And then as adults, why do you and I always feel like we are right correct 99% of the time, which can't possibly be true, right? You can't be right 99% of the time and me be right 99% of the time. Yet we're both convinced that we are because we are self-centered, concentrated on self people, that we want to magnify ourselves. And I'll get into what I mean by that here in just a second. So I want to give a brief recap of what's happened to this point. That you need to understand and remember that the people of Israel, they have been waiting, praying for, anticipating, anguishing over the promised Messiah for hundreds of years. And if you had been in the lineage of David, you have to think that they would have been thinking generation after generation, could it be us? Are we going to be the generation that's going to get to see the Messiah? Who is it going to be? That would have been on their thoughts and their minds readily and continually. Well, the angel Gabriel, Dusty covered this last week. The angel Gabriel is sent by God to Mary, and he tells her that she is going to bear the son that they've waited for. You're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be the son of the most high God, and his throne is going to reign forever and ever. And she responds by saying, I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. And then she travels to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is also miraculously pregnant. And we get to this song of praise that Mary sings. And now before we look at what she says, I'm curious, what would you say? Like, what would be your reaction to this if you are Mary in this situation? And as I thought about this, I could see one of two reactions in me, and I'm not saying they're good reactions, both centered on self. That the first one could be this almost type of bragging mentality. Like, let's go. Like, I get to be a part of this story. I get to be the parent of the Messiah. That all this waiting, all this anticipation, all this praying that all of us have been waiting for, I am carrying, not me, because I can't do that, but, like, I'm carrying the Messiah. That she could be tempted to make it about her. And if, if you thought that parent bragging was a temptation in today in 2022, imagine the temptation that she must have felt back then. Things like, oh, like your son walked at 11 months old. That's really cute. I'm sure that was a special moment for y'all. We felt the same way when he walked on water, um, right? That you can be, t- and you laugh because we do that. Either we say it or we think it. That even when someone has a success or victory, we're tempted to make that about us and compare ourselves to that, right? That that would be a temptation of bragging of you have this perfect child, the Messiah that's been long awaited and tempted to make it about you. 
Okay, or the second reaction could have been the flip side of that. Like this frustration, this fear, this resentment, but that's still focused on self. Almost this, I didn't ask for this. Now all of my plans are altered. People are always going to whisper about me. People are always going to gossip about me. People are always going to doubt and not believe my story. I just wanted a simple, easy life. What do you mean I'm the Messiah's mom? I didn't want this. And that's still a reaction centered on self. But Mary, she didn't react either way. Look at what she does. Let's look again at the first few verses, beginning in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. I want to pause right here. So first I want you to notice, the first thing she says is, My soul magnifies the Lord. And then in verse 47, it says that my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I want us to think about for just a second the context of when she says this. As I was reading this, I found myself asking, why is this song here and why doesn't she burst into this song after Gabriel's message? It's after she visits Elizabeth that she bursts into this song. And I think it's because that God in his kindness uses Elizabeth to affirm the message. Okay, I have to assume that Mary found herself thinking, did I dream that Interaction? Like, am I just crazy? Like, I was alone, and this angel came to me and said, I'm pregnant as a virgin. Like, did I dream that? Am I crazy? And then she goes and she visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth knows nothing about her carrying the Messiah, yet it says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and in verse 43 declares, the uh, mother of my Lord has come to me. That God in his kindness through Elizabeth affirms the message, which is beautiful to me. That I think about how often God uses the people of God to remind us of truth, to remind us of what is true and affirm his promises to us. And so she bursts into song. She's moved to worship and seeking to magnify the Lord. That she uses the language of even Psalm 34, 3, or Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. But do you see what she's doing here? That instead of focusing on herself, she's moved to worship and magnify and praise God. And then she begins to list out why he is worthy of magnifying, why he is worthy of praise. That there are eight he has statements here in this song. And I want you to take a look at it. Look at all the things that she declares that God has done. It says this, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That she does not point to her own accomplishments, her merits, what she had hoped to achieve and do with her life. She points to what God has done and who he is. And as an aside here, there's no indication here that Mary thinks that she is a co-mediator with Jesus. Like she actually calls God my Savior, this beautiful recognition that she is carrying her Savior. She's not pointing to her own greatness. She is pointing to the greatness of God. And here's the thing. This is not mine, I would assume maybe not your normal response to life and circumstances. 
that Mary is modeling for us like great and incredible humility that she wants to magnify, to make known, to celebrate, to worship, to praise God. And like I said earlier, I'm convinced that every thought, every action, every plan of mine is to magnify, to make known, to celebrate, to worship myself. That we magnify ourselves. And what I mean by that word is, is I want you to think about the last time you used a magnifying glass. That maybe um, it was in like a middle school science project. You know, kids, magnifying glasses are not the phone that you like, you know, swipe to zoom in. It's like a little glass, okay? That, um, what a magnifying glass does is it makes something that is not readily visible and seen, it makes it visible and seen. That it amplifies it. It makes it b- appear bigger than it actually is. And we are all committed to magnifying ourselves. That we want to be visible. We want to be seen. That another way of saying this, or the way the Bible would say this, is we are prideful people. C.S. Lewis, the Narnia guy, this might be the nerdiest sermon in the history of Redeemer, he describes pride as this. He says, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. That we are so concentrated on ourselves. And Lewis goes further and he gives two different versions of pride. And the first one is the one that we most often think of and associate with that word pride. So the first one would be this like pride of superiority, this self-exaltation of thinking. This one is the one you and I most often think of when we think about pride. Let me magnify my strengths. It's a concentration on self that solely focuses on strengths, on wins, on victories, where you are better. You're asking yourself, how do I compare to others and where am I better? That this can come out in arrogance, it can come out in chest pounding, it can come out in like scoreboard and scorekeeping, this concentration on self. That for example, maybe it comes out in you feeling better about yourself because of your appearance and your fitness and the way that you eat and having better clothes than whoever you, compare, you choose to compare yourself to. Or maybe it's you feeling better about yourself, you feeling exalted, you feeling superiority based on your vocational success or your financial income, again, based on who you choose to compare yourself to. Or maybe it's you feeling better or having security about the way that you parent and the success of your children compared to those around you. You feel exalted, you feel superior. I'm curious how you would fill in that blank here. That I am worthy of respect, I'm worthy of acceptance, I'm worthy of celebration, I'm worthy of attention because of what? That it's this concentration on self of I want this thing and I'm actually worthy of it because of this merit over here. And how are you answering that? This pride of superiority, this concentration on self. Or the other way, this pride of inferiority or self-deprecation. Now, you might read this one and you might think, wait, hold up, that's not pride, that's humility. Okay, hold on for a second, though. It's not. Because here's what this one looks like. It's still a comparison attempt, but it's a version of comparison that results in thinking, how do I compare to others and where am I worse? Let me magnify my failings. And so examples of this, it might be the flip side of any of the ones I mentioned, like parenting, vocational success, financial success, your appearance, and it's you feeling worse about yourself based on, again, who you choose to compare yourself to. Now think about your thoughts. Did you ever find yourself thinking and wishing you were someone else? 
Now, you would never word it that way, but you for sure find yourself thinking and daydreaming about other things people have. You wish, maybe you wish you had their job. You wish you had their family. You wish you had their level of income. Why do they get to take the types of vacations they take? That you're focused on themselves. That covetousness and envy can be symptoms of inferiority pride because it's you concentrating on yourself and thinking about things that you do not have that you feel like you should or you would be better if you had it. Or maybe you're in a season of despair and discouragement because your life is not how you planned it would be. And so you're constantly thinking about, I'm not as far along as I should be. What is wrong with me? Or maybe you wear the trials and difficulties of your life like some badge of honor. Have you ever talked to someone that they're constantly one-upping you, but not in their successes, but actually in how, hard, how much harder their life is than you? That maybe they ask you, um, hey, how was your weekend? And you're like, honestly, not great. We had sick kids all weekend. And they're like, yeah, we've had sick kids for three months. Oh, okay, you win, uh, I guess. I don't know how to respond to that. that. They're looking for some sense of validation. They're seeking to make it about themselves, even if it's about an inferiority thing, even if it's about a trial, it's about a difficulty, that I'll take that and make it about me so I feel better about me and I have that attention, this magnification of me. Or maybe they're always fishing for compliments. Yeah, hey, don't say that about yourself. Like, you know, that's not you. Like, that, and, and to seek that affirmation. And look, that you are in this category if you're constantly making jokes about yourself. And I'm 100% in this category. I am just as guilty of this as anybody, of constantly self-deprecating and making jokes about self. Why? This wrong view of self, but it's still centered on self. I am not worthy of what? Love, acceptance, success, friendship. Because of what? That again, what is this thing that you wish you had, but you say you're not worthy of it because of what? And you might still be thinking, I don't know, Keenan, this looks a lot and sounds a lot like humility. But it's not. Because again, remember what pride is. That pride is this over-concentration on self. That the inferiority pride person may not be puffing their chest. They may not be bragging externally and is likely quickly to self-deprecate themselves. But the inferiority pride person is just as focused on themselves as the superiority pride person is. It's just coming out differently and looking and sounding differently. But both equally focused on themselves, both equally centered on themselves, just looking at different aspects of themselves. And so let me ask you this. We're going to ebb and flow, all of us, between superiority pride and inferiority pride. You might have a tendency towards one or the other, but I'm curious, which one are you in right now? That as you're concentrating on yourself, are you thinking more about your victories, your successes, where you are right, what you deserve, where you are winning, how you are better? Or, like as you're concentrating on yourself and your life circumstances, are you dwelling on and concentrating on where you have failed, where life could be better, where you are worse, why you don't deserve something? And look, there's problems with this. As a quick warning to the superiority pride person, it's never going to be enough. 
Like this seeking after self-exaltation and self-celebratory and, and being superior than others. There's always more to compare. There's always more to do. You might, if, however you filled in that blank, I am worthy of blank. You might get that, but then you have to keep working to keep that or to get it again. That this is hamster wheel. You are busy and what it leads to is you're tired of always trying to make it about yourself and be winning and be exalted at every turn. And a quick warning to the inferiority pride person that you can be, Keenan, so focused on self that you miss out on what God is doing. That you look so much at where you are failing or where you feel like you're not enough or life is not how it should be that you miss what God is actually doing in your life. And to be clear, when demeaning yourself, you are demeaning the God who created you. That it's not just about you. So when you are demeaning and self-deprecating yourself, you are deprecating the God who created you. And also, I don't mean this as a joke, like truly, also, you're just sad all the time. If I'm looking at myself in inferiority and focus on my failings, where's the joy, where's the satisfaction there? And so how do we live lives that are not concentrated on self? How do we live lives that are not superiority pride or inferiority pride, but are humble? Well, we, mag- we don't magnify the- ourselves. We magnify the Lord, not self. But how? The first way we do this, let's follow Mary's model here. The first thing we do is we remember and remind ourselves what God has done. Like I said earlier, so much of my life is thinking about what I have done, how I, what I have achieved, or how I have fallen short and failed, this concentration on self. But instead, following Mary's example, what would be different about my life if instead of focusing on what I have done and what I have accomplished or where I have failed, focusing on what God has done for me? Look at this uh, slide here, taking those he has statements and turning them into reflection questions. And maybe you need to do this as like this end of year debrief for yourself of thinking about this last year or with your spouse or with friends and roommates to take the focus off yourself and remind yourself what God has done. So he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Where have you felt uniquely seen by God? Where in this like unique way, God saw you and you felt that and you felt seen by him. Or he who is mighty has done great things for me. That what are the great things that God has done for the world, for my friends, for my family and me? Because here's what the superiority pride person is going to do. Is only going to focus on the great things that he or she has done. Look at what I have achieved. Look at the great things I have done. Or the inferiority pride person is going to look at this and say, look at where I have failed. I have not done enough. I am not good enough. But instead, look at what the great things God has done for you. Or he has shown strength with his arm. Where have I seen God's strength in my past or in the world around me? That maybe, maybe it is hard for you to see like good things that God has done for you in, in right now. Maybe this is a uniquely hard and trying season. But instead of focusing on that and yourself, look to the past. Where have you seen God's strength? Where have you seen God's movement in your life? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. How has God humbled me? And how is that actually a grace to me? You, you know, we don't like this one. 
right? The superiority pride person doesn't like this one, that when you feel humbled by God, when you don't achieve the thing that you wanted to achieve, or you don't get the I am blank that you wanted to get, that I am worthy of respect, maybe you get disrespected, and that is a humbling experience for you. And what that could result in is frustration, resentment, despair. But instead of being moved to frustration, resentment, and despair, what if instead you saw that as God's movement in you to humble you, to not look for your satisfaction in that thing, but in him. To remind you that it's not about you, but it's about him. And what I mean by where was I when God found me, that the entryway, the door into even Christianity is through the door of humility. It's taking your eyes off yourself and to him, admitting your need for him. And remember that, that God saved you. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. What does God value and do I value the same things? That I want you to think about this, that we as a society and myself personally, we tend to value might and power and strength, that those are the qualities and control. Those are all the qualities we want and we value. But is that what actually God values? That he says he exalts those of humble estate that we want to be seen. We want, we will value the things that will make us seen But if that's what we value, there's a disconnect between what we value and what God values. He has filled the hungry with good things. How has God graciously and generously provided for me? You see, the superiority pride person would say, I have achieved those things. I have provided those things. My strong work ethic, that got me that income. My strong work ethic, that's what bought me these Christmas presents and my kids these presents. But is it? Or is it God who provided you that income, who provided you that job, who keeps you in that job, who gives you the talents, the abilities, the mind to be able to do it? Or the inferiority pride person will say, I don't have good things, that God is holding out on me, that he has not provided for me graciously and generously, that we tend to focus on the things that we do not have to the neglect of the things that we do have. The rich he has sent away empty. This is similar to the one earlier. How has God graciously shown me that putting my hope in the things that I filled in the blank with, that I feel once I achieve it, I'm still sent away empty. That it didn't provide the thing that I thought it would. And is that actually God's grace to remind you that that's not what you're seeking after. That's not what you want. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. How have I been helped by God? You know, I went through all these questions myself as I wrote them and thinking about them. And this one embarrassingly took me too long to answer. How have I been helped by God? Why is that hard for me to answer? Because I don't think I need him in my day to day, right? I'm not saying that's a good thing that I am tempted to think, oh, this struggle we're going through, this trial I'm going through, I can get through it. I can double down. I can make it through. Or this problem that needs to be fixed. I need to address it. I need to go after it. I need to fix it. I can get it. I got this, God. I don't need you. But instead, how about focusing on where God has helped me? And this moves to the next one, the most important one, of how we magnify the Lord. We look not at ourselves, but to Jesus. You see, Mary is not the main goal to model after, though it's a good example, because Mary's not even the point of her own song. She's pointing to the greatness of God. And I want to take a look at Philippians 2 here. And what, as I read this, I want you to look for this, taking this concentration off of self and to God and how that results in humility. Look at what it says. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind which among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so notice this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, that's this goal that we're trying to strive after, count others more significant than yourself. So it says, look not to your own interest. Do not concentrate on yourself, but instead have what in mind? Verse five, Christ Jesus. So how do you be humble? How do you live a humble life? You stop looking at yourself. You stop thinking about yourself and you look to Jesus and you think of Jesus. That Tim Keller says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, inferiority, pride person. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that is what Jesus did. Look at verse 7. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I want you to think about that for just a second. That the God of the universe and his holy, holiness and his splendor, he came and he took on the form of the most vulnerable of all of human society, a baby. A baby is 100% dependent on all things for their survival. And that is who the form that he took on. And then his whole life set that trajectory. Right? He's born in a manger that he, his whole life is relatively poor. In the last three years of his life, he went from being you know, doubted at best to hated at worst. That he is crucified by the people that he created. That he did not concentrate on, on himself. He did not seek to exalt himself. He did not self-loathe or resent or dwell on his hard circumstances. It, what he wanted to exalt and make known the Father and what he was doing and to save us. That this is how you and I are made right with God. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, Philippians 2 says that he is exalted above the name that is above all names so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that the way that you are saved is first confess that Jesus is Lord. And what you and I need to understand is that Jesus is Lord whether or not you or I ever confess him as that. In fact, we all think we are Lord. We want it to be about ourselves. We want it to make it about ourselves. And the way that you become a Christian is say, no, it's not about me. It is about him. And I want to live my life no longer for myself, but for the one who for my sake died. And then it's taking that mindset into every perspective in every arena of life. That's not, that's not just the entry door into Christianity. It is Christianity. It's no longer living for yourself, but living for the one who for your sake died and seeking to magnify him. So take parenting, for example. It's not about magnifying yourself as this parent. It's taking your parenting and seeking to magnify the Lord to your children and those around you through your parenting. It's taking your vocation and not seeking to use that as a tool to magnify yourself, but use your vocation to magnify the Lord and to make him known to those around you and for the flourishing of others around you. That this goes on and on and on. That my life is not about me. 
Your life is not about you. My life is a gift from God to be used for God to magnify and praise Him. And the beauty of it is, is when we actually let go of that and realize that it's not about us, we can actually find true joy and true satisfaction. I want to read Psalm 34.3. says this, O magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. That God, we come before you, um, and we admit and we confess that we try to make everything about us. So God, I pray even right now that you would show us the insufficiencies of us trying to do that, uh, that you would humble us, that you would show us that it's not about us, and that you would help us to magnify you in all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. Remind us of what you have done for us, and may we be used by you to magnify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.